If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. And it's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. But rejoices with the truth. It always protects. Always trusts, always hopes. Always perseveres. Love never fails. Hey, hey, really good to see you today. Uh, delighted to be here and greetings also to those joining us in Cafe Church and in Cambridge and Leicester and London. We've been, we've been coming to Kingsgate for 280 years now and it's so always good to be with you. And this great series that you've been following and I've been following it too on the internet, Love Is looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This weekend we're thinking um, about love is devoted. And we've already uh, heard the words, but let me remind you of them. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 and 6 says this, Love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. I said a moment ago that I'm delighted to be here, and I really am delighted to be here, uh, even though I have attended and spoken at 16 events, Christian events, in the last 14 days. But I'm still glad to be here. Um, I said to Kay some time ago, I, I preach so much, I get sick of the sound of my own voice. And she smiled knowingly and said, I understand completely how you feel. Many of the gatherings, the vast majority of the gatherings that I go to, I'm, I really enjoy them. They're heartwarming. They're encouraging. The preaching is uh, inspirational. Uh, the worship is engaging. Uh, and I, I'm glad to be there. And, and in my own preaching ministry, I, I've, I've experienced a lot of diversity. And I've wafted incense with high Anglicans. And I've bopped around with high-energy charismatics on Duracells. And I've I've even done a glory march with Genra Eva uh, Barrows, who was the worldwide head of the Salvation Army. And during a meeting in Australia, she came dashing out from the platform, grabbed my hand, and we galloped around the building while the brass band went insane. It was pretty awful, quite frankly, but sort of enjoyable as well. So, but most of the time, I, I really enjoy these gatherings. But I've just got to confess, there have been one or two in the last... Uh, 40 years that have not been so great. Uh, just, just to be honest about it, you know, uh, uh, worship at Kingsgate is always great. I've been to places where the worship just goes on and on and on and on. And I, I, and I know we sing songs like, I, I could sing of your love forever. 
But we don't really mean that, do we? At least this side of heaven. One day we will in, enjoy uh, worship and fellowship with God forever. But you know when the worship just goes on and on and on and you sing that worship song 89 times and you're losing the will to live and half the congregation are on the phone to the Samaritans because desperation is setting in. And then just when you think it can't get any worse, the worship leader uh, breathlessly says into the microphone, do you know... Heaven's going to be just like this, only longer. The worst meeting I can think of happened a few years ago, uh, and it was awful. Um, People were getting drunk during the meeting, apparently on the communion wine, which was the real stuff. Uh, And they'd had a meal during uh, before the service, uh, but some folks were just diving into the food, not waiting for others to arrive. In fact, when the others arrived, they had them sit in an inferior place just to make them feel bad. And then when the preacher was preaching, people were interrupting the preacher with revelations and and prophecies. Don't even think about it today. And uh, it was a complete nightmare, and it wasn't a one-off. It was happening as a pattern, and I wasn't, I I, I was not there. Because, you see, that meeting happened 2,000 years ago in Corinth, which is exactly one of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter. There was unloving chaos in Corinth, and sometimes I hear people, they say, you know, if we could just get back to the way it was in the early church, and I'm thinking, you probably haven't read 1 Corinthians. Now, there were some very beautiful elements and aspects to the life of the early church, particularly as we read in the early chapters of the book of Acts. One word that describes their life together is the word that I've used as the title for this message. They were devoted. Devotion was a characteristic of their life. The word devoted is used six times in the book of Acts. It's used, the word devoted, in Acts chapter 1 in reference to the disciples' attitude towards prayer. They were devoted to it. And one meaning of the word devoted means to stick like glue. I really like that. A couple of weeks ago, I tried to repair something in our house. Always a mistake, stepping out of my gifting. And I used some super glue. And I began the repair with a hand like this. And I ended the repair with a hand like this. Stick like glue. Not, not, a, not some kind of a lack of faithfulness, or, but a, rather a tenacity, a commitment to each other. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 9, it says the disciples held a boat steady for Jesus while he was preaching to the, to the crowds. And, and the same word is used there, devoted. The boat was devoted in that context. You see, back in the early days of, of the Christian faith, if you were a a Jesus person, you were just part of this thing called church. It was just part of the deal. John Wesley said, There is nothing so unchristian as the solitary Christian. They were devoted. And I wonder, just pausing before we dive into 1 Corinthians 13, does, is that a word that would describe my, your relationship with our church? Devotion. Or, or if there were boxes to check, would it be casual, consumer, or devoted. It's it's quite a challenge. 
And so Paul writes to the Corinthians, and and let me remind us that the Apostle Paul did not write 1 Corinthians 13 to provide material for wedding ceremonies or to provide something for canny manufacturers to turn into magnets to adorn Christian refrigerators around the world, or indeed, tea towels. 1 Corinthians 13 was written to define the word love. Love is. And words need definition. Some words come in and out of fashion. When I was when I was young, back in the 60s and 70s, if something was nice, we would, we would call it groovy. No one, no one says that anymore. You know, if you say groovy, people say, break out the dinosaur food. You know, it's, it's weird. And, and new words come into our vocabulary. There's, there's a word we've been using a lot recently, which five years ago didn't even exist. It, it's that beautiful word, Brexit. We didn't even know that. That word didn't exist a few years ago. People say, Brexit, what does that mean? It's a Greek word for chaos. (laughs) Donald Tusk yesterday invented, I think, another new word with all that's going on. He says that what the UK needs is a flextension. A flextension. That's a flexible extension. You see, it's it's a new word. And the word love needs definition. I I love a cappuccino. I love a summer's day. They made love. The word is so often used and almost universally misunderstood. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he's talking about a most excellent way, 1 Corinthians 12, 31. The word there literally, the Greek word, and I'm not making this one up, means a stone's throw beyond. This is how we're supposed to live with God's help. As Tom Webster said it in his brilliant message about three weeks ago, he said 1 Corinthians 13 is a perfect picture of love. Now now let's know that these words, their immediate application is to the life of the local church because that is the context to which Paul wrote. He's writing to the congregation in Corinth. But I think you will all agree that we are living at a time where the wider application of these words is so appropriate. Just in the last few days, the police in this country have issued a request that all of those involved in political discourse restrain their language because they are nervous about language that inflames, that could create difficulties. Just in the last few days, we've heard that 10,000 police are standing by because of fear of unrest and rioting. We know about phone bullying and text bullying in our schools. Uh, Social media is is a place of anger. This morning, I I went on Facebook earlier today and, uh, you know, just to check out photographs of people's breakfasts that they post for the admiration of the watching world and I noticed that on Facebook on social media there's such a lot of angry rhetoric just recently BBC Radio 4 did a program um, why are we so angry and during that program they uh, they interviewed Professor Martha Nussbaum she's a moral philosopher 
Uh, she has 62 honorary degrees from around the world. And they, they talked about anger in the public forum and anger in politics and anger in life. Uh, and at the end of the program, the interviewer dropped in in the last 60 seconds, dropped in a question to the philosopher, the brilliant genius philosopher. What's the answer to all of this unkindness and anger? And she said, I think it's faith, hope, and love. You see, 1 Corinthians 13 is not just a piece of sentimental poetry, but rather it is a charter for the way that we are called to do relationships. And in these two verses that we're looking at together, there are three couplets that the Apostle Paul creates. In his writing style, Paul often creates couplets, dual statements that link together. And in verses 5 and 6, we see this again. So let's dive in. Let's have a look. First of all, there's a question for us that is created by this passage. Who matters most? Who matters most? Self-obsession leads to rudeness. The apostle says, it love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. Uh, on this occasion, I really like the King James Version rendition of this. Love doth not behave itself unseemly. Antiquated language, but probably a slightly more accurate translation. Writing to a church where, as one commentator says, being unseemly had become their Trademark, self-obsession, rudeness. A few weeks ago, I met the rudest fellow passenger that I have ever met. Can and I travel a lot. We probably traveled four million miles or so in ministry. That's why I look like I do. I'm only 26, but all this travel has messed me up. And we were in Chicago airport. I'm not crazy about airports. They are emotional black holes filled with people who are only there because they want to be somewhere else. So they're all a little bit fed up about that. And not only that, you have to go through security. What a beautiful moment that is when you walk up to these lovely people with stern faces who are concerned that you, sir, may well be carrying a tactical nuclear warhead in your carry-on, or even worse, a bottle of water. And our flight was delayed, and the weather was miserable, and it was Chicago Airport teeming with people, and we go into a restaurant for a snack, and it's packed. People are sharing tables. We spot a table, and there are two empty chairs, and then a third chair that has a bag on it. But it's just me and Kay. We just need the two chairs. I looked across at this very, very expensive-looking bag, but paid little attention to it just then. As we sat down, a lovely older lady, probably actually my age, came up to me and uh, she said, is that your bag? And I said, no, it's not. And she said, oh, I just wanted to sit down. And I said, oh, let me help. And I was just about to get up to move the bag when the, the owner of the bag, who was sitting like two meters away at the bar, um, an irritatingly handsome, rich-looking, smooth bloke, turns around and he says, that's my bag and I don't want it moved. It's an expensive bag. I don't want it on the floor. And this lady said, looking at her and, and he says, you can wait until I finish my meal and then I'll move the bag. I'm like, you can't be serious. So 
with a voice a little louder than necessary, I said, why don't you, said to the lady, why don't you have my seat? And she went, no, 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 I can't have my seat. No, 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 no. Why don't we do that? Have my seat. Have my seat. (laughs) And she came and sat down and I'm thinking, right. It's time for a little chat. We need a word, as Phil Mitchell would say. Some of you are going, is Phil Mitchell in the Bible? No, he's not. <laughs> I went over and I just I said, I said to this guy, I said, excuse me. I said, um, uh, I just want to make sure we got this right. Um, you wanted this lovely lady to stand up and wait for you to finish your meal because you wanted your bag to occupy a seat. Did I get that right? And he went, yeah. And he then said, he said, everything's all right, isn't it? Because you're a gentleman, you gave her your seat. So we're good, aren't we? Everything's fine, isn't it? And I sensed a look in his eye that said that his forehead was about to connect with my nose. <laughs> and I, you see, I, I, this creates a problem for me because I've got this allergy to pain. And I thought, this is going to get ugly. And it's a bit awkward, you know, if you're a, if you're a preacher traveling and you end up in a punch-up in an airport. It's just a bit it's just awkward, awkward. So I said, uh, okay, all right, well, fine. And uh, by now this lady is, um, she sat in my seat and then another seat opened up. And the people in the restaurant around who witnessed this, they were all just like staggered. Such self-obsession. But you know, self-obsession can be ours as Christians. We can be rude too. A friend of mine who's in Westminster says that Christians can be among the rudest when it comes to writing to their politicians. I love what Tom said three weeks ago. This lovely phrase, cultivate love's courtesy. You see, when you're self-obsessed, you almost become unaware of how you're coming across. There's the irony. Self-obsession leads to a lack of self-awareness. I don't think this guy was aware of the ugliness of his behavior. Oblivious to it. A few years ago, a friend of mine, um, a friend of ours, bought a two-year-old BMW out in the States, and they replaced the battery in it. And in this particular BMW, the battery is not in the the, uh, bonnet. That's the one almost says that the hood, no, the bonnet, um, it's, it's actually fitted un, in, under the back seat on the right-hand side. Um, but the battery terminals, they, they put the wrong battery in when they replaced it. So the battery terminals were sticking up a bit too high. So we get in their car and I sit on the back seat and my rear end connects with the seat. The seat goes down. The, the, the seat, unknowing, I didn't know this, the seat is now connected to electricity. And and my heart is feeling strangely warmed. And uh, the seat goes down, and uh, I'm not aware, but now the the seat's on fire, and I'm not aware. And and the BMW, you know, German car, so it's flashing up, you know, Achtung, Achtung, bottom on fire. (laughs) But I am completely oblivious to this. And we're driving along, and and I went... (laughs) anyone else smell smoke? And my friend turned around and said, that's not smoke. Your backside's on fire. 
And, and we felt led to pull the car over. And we hopped out of the car, and the car completely incinerated. Just went up in smoke. Praise the Lord for insurance. I was surrounded by smoke. And I was completely unaware. And when we're self-obsessed, that's what happens. And others around us, they're like, what are they like? But we don't see it. We have 2020 vision when it comes to the faults and failings of others. And sometimes we say, well, you know, it's just the way I am. 1 Corinthians 13 calls us to refuse surrender to sameness. Don't say, well, it's just the way I am. I, I, I've always been that way. You know, I just blow up, but it, it, it's over in a few minutes. But yeah, that's true of a nuclear attack as well. Who matters most? Self-obsession leads to rudeness. Secondly, secondly, how do we react? How do we react? Anger is fueled by keeping score. You see, Paul says it's not, easy, not easily angered. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Anger is a very real problem at the moment in our culture. Did you know that Britain has the regrettable, dubious honour of currently being the highest in the world for road rage? 80.4% of drivers in the UK polled by the Gallup organisation said that they had experienced road rage. They interviewed people who had been the perpetrators of the rage, three in five said they felt fine about it. They felt their victims deserved it. Only 14% of road rage people actually showed any remorse. And this can happen to all of us. I, I told you this story back in 2011, and I really wish I didn't have to tell it again, but it, it, it just is appropriate. Years ago, uh, when our kids were living at, at home, um, our, our daughter had just passed her driving test, which was amazing because I was the instructor, which is a bad idea. Parents, let me help you. Do not teach your kids to drive. There should be something about that in, in Proverbs, you know. Ride is not in thine daughter's chariot. Otherwise, much shall the folly be unto you. And uh, she passed the driving test, and so she's driving it around town with Richard, our son, and then the phone went, and it's Richard. About an hour after they'd left, they left, he said, Dad, we've got a problem. He said, we've nudged another car. Isn't that a beautiful way of putting it? Nudged. He said, this fella pulled out from a side road. We had the right of way. We couldn't stop. We hit him. No one's hurt. His car's fine. Ours is pretty messed up. And he said, it's, but it's quite tense here. He said, could you, could you just come over and help us out? And I said, son, I will be filled with joy and delight to participate in this moment of parental input. Hold the line just a moment while I get my tambourine that I might worship while driving in your direction. And I drove over to where this accident had taken place. You could see the cars. I could see Kelly. She's crying. She's in shock. And Richard's there. And there's this man standing there who's caused this accident. And really, I can't adequately express to you the deep sense of the love of Jesus that I felt <laughs> towards him. I just, just loved him. 
I got out of the car and I went over and checked on the kids. And then I went up to him and said, hello. I said, I'm, I'm their dad. He said, hello. I said, what happened here? He said, your daughter drove into me. Well, that changed everything. <laughs> Have you ever seen that movie Alien? You ever seen that? You know, you were flicking through looking for Christian TV and it just came on. Oh, I don't know. And that green monster popped out of the chest of a hitherto perfectly nice chap. Well, that's what happened to me. Your daughter drove into me. What do you mean? What do you mean? She, what are you look at her. What, what are you talking about? And he looked at me and he said, I don't like you. He said, I'm going to get in my car and wait for the police. Got in his car, slammed the door. And I'm standing there thinking, oh, Lord, this is not good. Not good. And then I thought, really hope that my car doesn't have a Christian fish on the back. <laughs> so I checked my car. Thank the Lord it was fishless. And I, I went over to his car and I knocked on the, I knocked on the window. And he wound the window down. This, this shows you how long ago this was, younger people here. There was a day in history when we used to wind the window down. Yes, I know. I said, hello, mate, it's me, the bloke you don't like. He said, hello. I said, could we start all over again? This wasn't good. And he got out of the car and he, he said, I said, look, I, I said, I was a bit sharp two minutes ago. Could we, could we start this conversation all over? And his face broke into a lovely smile. And he said, yeah, he said, he said I'm, not, I'm not normally like this myself. He said, he said I'm a minister. I said, good, good, well done, lovely. <laughs> he said, what do you do? I said, um, I'm a plumber, you got a sink? I said, well, actually, mate, I'm, I'm a minister as well. He said, really? He said, what's your name? I said, Dave Smith. <laughs> All insurance claims forwarded, please, to the Kingsgate Centre, Peterborough. <laughs> no, I didn't. I said, I said, it's, it's Jeff. I said, what's your last name? I said, Lucas. He said, Jeff Lucas. I said, yeah. He said, I'm reading one of your books at the moment, Jeff. I saw you at Spring Harvest. I was watching you on God TV last week. Happy to meet you, Jeff. Praise the Lord. I thought he's going to whip out a guitar. We're going to sing Kumbaya on the side of the road. Take a snapshot of that moment. You've got two men of God, brackets, allegedly, <laughs> behaving badly. You see, we're all capable. I can see it in your eyes. You're, not, you're thinking, it's not us that's capable, Jeff. It's you that's capable. <laughs> And one of the reasons for anger is this attitude that Paul exposes of keeping account of wrongs. He uses a Greek word here, logizomai, which is a very powerful Greek word that's a bookkeeping term. The person who goes through life noting offenses in a ledger. A married man once said to his friend, he said, every time my wife and I get into an argument, she gets all historical. And the guy said, don't you mean hysterical? He said, no, historical. 
She rehearses everything I've ever done in the whole history of our marriage. And you see, when you do that, not only will that sour relationships, it will sour life. Some of us, maybe we're keeping score with life. And we've got this attitude that there's a dark conspiracy against us. And we're just waiting to explode. We are constantly keeping score. I'm so glad 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God in Christ does not reckon reckon our sins against us. Do you know what happens when you keep reckoning? Well, that creates prejudice, and prejudice is always editorial. Let me explain. When we say you always, when we, when we come to a prejudice conclusion, we tend to edit out that which contradicts our conclusion about that person, that organization, that church, and we edit in that which confirms our conclusion Prejudice is editorial. Do we keep a ledger of offences? Do we tend to say maybe in our marriages, in our friendships? You always, you always. Number three. Number three is are we growing in truth? Error leads to evil. Paul says love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Now, th- this language just needs a little bit of unpacking because it's, at first glance, it's a bit obscure. This idea of delighting in evil is the most obvious application. And it's a really unfortunate part of the human disposition. This idea of being gleeful at the downfall of another. The Germans have a word for it, schadenfreude, malignant joy. Pleasure derived by someone from another person's misfortune. And I really don't know what drives that, but there can be this disgusting delight that comes when we hear of that failure. How ugly is that? But then also, there's something else that's, I think, buried in this verse. And that is the way that Paul phrases it. Because he says, love does not delight in evil. Now, what's the opposite of evil? Well, the opposite of evil is good. You'd expect him to say, doesn't delight in evil, rejoices with good. But no, he changes it. It's a surprising couplet. And he says, rejoices with the truth. I believe that what we're seeing here is the reality that truth leads to to goodness. Truth nurtures character. That's one of the reasons why teaching and connect groups and uh, aligning ourselves with scripture daily is so important. Tom Wright says, when no attention is given to teaching and to constant lifelong Christian learning, people quickly revert to the worldview or mindset of the surrounding culture and end up with their minds shaped by whichever social pressures are most persuasive, with Jesus somewhere around as a pale influence or memory. Truth nurtures character. Notice as well that love and truth are joined here. Sometimes in the church these days, I hear people saying, never mind what the New Testament says about that. We just need to love people. In other words, it's almost as if we can just sacrifice 
truth in the name of love. But that is not true love. True love speaks the truth lovingly. True love holds to the truth. And so as we conclude this, let's ask this question. Is there someone, it's an odd question, is there someone whose downfall I would celebrate? Why would that be? What are we going to do about that? And are we growing in truth that leads to goodness? We're going to pray. We're going to pray. But as part of our praying, we're going to sing a prayer. The first thing we're going to do is reflect for a few moments. Would you bow your heads with me? Core questions, practical questions that are asked by the Apostle Paul. Who matters most? Self-obsession leads to rudeness. Have we been oblivious to our own self-interest, self-obsession? Do we live just on the edge of anger? It's where we parked ourselves, just waiting for the blue touch paper to be lit. Is our tendency to keep a ledger, detailed accounts of offenses? Does the phrase, you always fall on our lips a lot? Do we delight perversely at bad news about another? Are we growing in truth that leads to goodness? I invite you just to hold out your hand for a moment. When we stand before this chapter, Lord, we all stand wanting. And we pray that somehow today might be a junction moment in some marriages, in some friendships, in the way that we view church. And we also want to thank you because we are not alone in this. We do not stand before legislation about love, but we stand before the God of love who comes to fill us with your spirit and enable us to live ordinary life beautifully. So as we just wait in these moments, be among us.